please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there's always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options, shop pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to Dorky listeners. Just enter the code Dorky, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Safe Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Safe Boutique has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello, this is Dorkey. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not an expert or historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past and I'd like to share what I've learned. And I hope you enjoy it. New intro and outro. Who this? It's February, and so I thought it would be fun to talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre today. On the morning of February 14, 1929, seven members of Chicago's Northside Gang which was run by George Bugs Moran, were lined up against a wall outside a garage in Lincoln Park, Chicago, and shot by four unknown assailants, two of which who were dressed up as police officers. But I'm getting ahead of myself. To tell this story properly, we're going to have to go back to the beginning. This all started on January 17, 1919, when the 18th Amendment, also known as the Volstead Act, was ratified. The act banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. This law banning alcohol was difficult to enforce. Many people's response to the passing of the law was to just illegally produce and sell liquor on their own, or what was known as bootleg. Illegal bars, speakeasies, sprouted up, and as there was a lot of money to be made in the production and sale of this illegal alcohol, there was also a huge rise in gang violence and organized crime. Chicago, Illinois, was an epicenter of all this crime, and there were several groups that ran the selling of illegal alcohol in that city. 
All these groups competed for control of organized crime in Chicago, but especially the group that was led by Al Capone and a rival group led by George Bugs Moran. The rivalry between Capone and Moran had been escalating for a while. Not only were they both vying for control of Chicago's huge bootlegging trade, but Moran took over several speakeasies that were run by Capone, insisting that they were in his territory. Moran had also been muscling in on a dog track in the Chicago suburbs that was run by Capone. All this after Moran gang members Frank Gusenberg and his brother Peter unsuccessfully attempted to murder a member of Capone's gang, Jack McGurn. Moran's gang was also complicit in the murders of Pasqualino, Patsy Lillardo, and Antonio the Scourge Lombardo. Both these men had been presidents of the Unione Siciliana, the local mafia, and close associates of Capone. So, as far as the police can tell, the plan was to lure Moran to the SMC Cartage Warehouse on North Clark Street on Valentine's Day, 1929, to kill him and perhaps two or three of his lieutenants. It is usually assumed that the Moran gang members were lured to the garage with the promise of a stolen, cheap shipment of whiskey supplied by Detroit's Purple Gang, which was associated with Capone. The Gusenberg brothers were supposed to drive two empty trucks to Detroit that day to pick up two loads of the stolen whiskey. At 10.30 in the morning that Valentine's Day, seven members of Moran's gang were murdered. They were shot by four men using weapons, including two Thompson submachine guns, or, as they're more commonly known, Tommy guns. Two of the shooters were wearing police uniforms, while the others wore suits, ties, overcoats, and hats. Witnesses saw the men in police uniforms leading the other men at gunpoint out of the garage after the shooting. This fact will be explained later. The victims included five members of Moran's gang, Albert Pichelek, who was Moran's second-in-command and brother-in-law, Adam Heyer, who was the gang's bookkeeper and business manager, Albert Weinshank, who managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran, and the Gusenberg brothers, Frank and Peter. The other two men who were killed weren't members of the gang, but were associates, Reinhardt Schwimmer, a former optician-turned-gambler, and John May, an occasional mechanic for the Moran gang. Chicago police officers arrived at the scene to find that victim Frank Gusenberg was still alive, although he had been shot 14 times. He was taken to the hospital, where doctors stabilized him for a short time. When the police asked him who shot him, he reportedly replied, No one shot me. He died three hours later from his gunshot wounds. The massacre is believed to be an attempt to eliminate Moran himself. Al Capone was at his Florida home at the time of the attack but he's believed to have ordered the massacre. All of the victims were dressed in their best clothes, as was customary for gangsters at that time, except for John May, the mechanic. Most of the Moran gang arrived at the warehouse by about 10.30, except for Moran, who was running late. He and fellow gang member Ted Newberry were approaching the rear of the warehouse from the side street when they saw a police car nearing the building. They immediately turned around and went to a nearby coffee shop. They ran into gang member Henry Gusenberg, who was a third Gusenberg brother on the street, and warned him, so he also turned back. Willie Marks, another Moran gang member, also spotted the police car on his way to the garage and ducked into a doorway and jotted down the license number before leaving the neighborhood. 
It's believed that Capone's lookouts likely mistook one of Moran's men, probably Albert Weinshank, who was the same height and build for Moran himself. The physical similarity between the two men was made even stronger by their dress that morning. Both were wearing the same color coats and hats. Witnesses outside the garage saw a car pull up to a stop in front of the garage. Four men got out and walked inside, two of them dressed in police uniform. The two fake police officers carried shotguns and entered the rear portion of the garage, where they found members of Moran's gang and associates Reinhardt Schwimmer and John May, who was fixing a truck. The fake policemen then ordered the men to line up against the wall, then signaled to the pair in civilian clothes who had accompanied them. Two of the killers opened fire with the Tommy guns. The only survivor was May's dog, Highball. Side note, I just need to say how glad I am that the dog survived, and that I hope Highball lived a long, happy life after this, with lots of treats and lots of pets. To make it look like everything was under control as they left, the men in street clothes came out of the warehouse with their hands up, prodded by the two uniformed policemen. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre set off a public outcry, which posed a problem for all mob bosses. Within days, Capone received a summons to testify before a Chicago grand jury on charges of federal prohibition violations, but he said he was too unwell to attend. Police focused their attention on the Detroit Purple Gang. Members of the Purple Gang had rented rooms in houses that were right across the street from the garage 10 days before the massacre. Mugshots of Purple Gang members were picked out by the landlords, but they later wavered in their identification. The police questioned and cleared all these men, but the Purple Gang would remain associated with this crime for years. On February 22nd, police were called to the scene of a garage fire where they found a 1927 Cadillac sedan disassembled and partially burned. They were able to determine that the killers had used that car. They traced the engine number to a Michigan Avenue dealer who had sold the car to a James Morton of Los Angeles. The garage had been rented by a man calling himself Frank Rogers, who gave his address as 1859 West North Avenue. This was the address of the Circus Cafe, operated by Claude Maddox, a former St. Louis gangster with ties to the Capone Gang, the Purple Gang, and the St. Louis Gang, Egon's Rats. Police could not find any information about anyone named James Morton or Frank Rogers, but they did have a definite lead on one of the killers. Just minutes before the killings, a truck driver named Elmer Lewis had turned a corner a block away from 2122 North Clark and sideswiped a police car. He told police that he stopped immediately, but was waved away by the uniformed driver, who was missing a front tooth. Board of Education President H. Wallace Caldwell had witnessed the accident, and he gave the same description of the driver. Police were confident that they were describing Fred Burke, a former member of Egon's Rats. Burke and a close companion named James Ray were known to wear police uniforms whenever they were robbing. Burke was also a fugitive under indictment in Ohio. Police also suggested that Joseph Lelordo could have been one of the killers because of his brother Pasqualino's recent murder by Moran's gang. Police then announced that they suspected Capone gunman John Scalise and Jack McGurn 
as well as other Capone gang members. Police eventually charged McGurn and Scalise with the massacre. Scalise would end up murdered by Capone, and they eventually had to drop the murder charges against Jack McGurn because of a lack of evidence, and his girlfriend, Louise Rolfe, claimed to have been with him all of February 14th, which caused her to have the nickname The Blonde Alibi. There wasn't much movement on the case from then until December. A man in Michigan drunkenly rear-ended a car and drove off. A police officer saw the accident and tried to pull the driver over, eventually having to force the driver off the road. The officer hopped onto the running board of the car, but he was shot three times and died. The car was later found wrecked and abandoned and traced to a man named Fred Dane. After raiding Fred Dane's home, they discovered that this was actually Fred Killer Burke, a member of Capone's gang who was wanted by the Chicago police for his part in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. During this raid, police found a large trunk, which contained a bulletproof vest and almost $320,000 in bonds recently stolen from a Wisconsin bank, which is about $5.5 million in today's money. They also found two Tommy guns, two shotguns, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. They immediately notified the Chicago police, who requested both machine guns. They used forensic ballistics, which was a new science at the time, to identify the two Tommy guns they found as those that were used in the massacre. They also discovered that one of those guns had also been used a year and a half earlier in the murder of New York mobster Frankie Yale. Unfortunately, no further concrete evidence surfaced in the massacre case. They captured Burke over a year later on a farm in Missouri. He was tried for the murder of the officer he shot while fleeing from the hit-and-run in Michigan, which they had more evidence for than they had for the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So he was tried in Michigan and sentenced to life in prison. Then, in January 1935, FBI agents surrounded a Chicago apartment looking for the remaining members of the Burker gang. Side note. The Barker Gang is the gang from back then that was known for consisting of two brothers as well as their mother, who was known as Ma Barker, Arthur Doc Barker, one of the brothers from the Barker Gang, and Byron Bolton were arrested. Bolton was a Navy machine gunner and an associate of the gang Egon's Rats. He had also been the valet of Chicago hitman Fred Goitz. Bolton knew about many of the Barker Gang's crimes and pinpointed the Florida hideout of Ma Barker and her other son, Freddie Barker, both of whom were killed in a shootout with the FBI a week later. Bolton said he took part in the St. Valentine's Day massacre with Goitz, Fred Burke, and several others. The FBI didn't have jurisdiction in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, as that was a state murder case, so they kept what Bolton told them to themselves. But then the Chicago American newspaper reported a second-hand version of his confession and declared that the crime had been solved. Garbled versions of Bolton's story went out in the national media. Bolton, it was reported, said that the plan to murder Bugs Moran had been plotted in October or November 1928 at a Wisconsin resort owned by Fred Goitz. He claimed that he was there at the meeting with Goitz, Al Capone, and some others. Bolton also named men that he thought were the actual killers. He gave an account of the massacre that was very different from the one generally told by historians. 
He said that he only saw men in plain clothes exit the Cadillac and go into the garage. This indicates that a second car was used by the killers. A witness to the incident had said he saw at least two uniformed men exiting a car in the alley and entering the garage through its rear doors. Bolton said that he had mistaken one of Moran's men to be Moran. Bolton said that Capone was furious with him for his mistake and the resulting police pressure and threatened to kill him, only to be talked out of it by Fred Goitz. His claims were corroborated by Gus Winkler's widow, Georgette, in an official FBI statement and in her memoirs. She claimed that her husband and his friends had formed a special crew used by Capone for high-risk jobs. She said that Capone was said to have trusted them implicitly and called them the, quote, American boys. Bolton's statements were also backed up by William Drury, a Chicago detective who had stayed on the massacre case long after everyone else had given up. Bank robber Alvin Karpis later said the American boys were paid a collective salary of $2,000 a week plus bonuses. Karpis also said that Capone had told him while they were in Alcatraz together that Goitz had been the actual planner of the massacre. Despite Byron Bolton's statements, no action was taken by the FBI. All of the men who he named were dead by 1935, with the exception of Burke and Maddox. Historians are still divided on whether or not the American boys committed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre or not. While I'm not one of those historians, or an historian at all, I'll be honest, I'm divided about whether or not the American boys committed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre or not, too. Part of me thinks that Bolton pulled a Henry Hill and told the authorities everything he knew before Henry Hill was even born. Another part of me thinks he made most or all of it up. Either way, I think the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was a horrific episode in that chapter of history. In my research, I found out that both of the Tommy guns that were used in the massacre are currently in the possession of the Berrien County, Michigan Sheriff's Department. The garage where the massacre occurred at 2122 North Clark Street was demolished in 1967, and the site is now a parking lot for a nursing home. The bricks of the north wall against which the victims were shot were purchased by a Canadian businessman. For many years, they were displayed in various crime-related novelty displays. Many of them were later sold individually, and the remainder are now owned by the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Before I go, I need to say a special thank you to my official Italian correspondent for helping me with the pronunciation of some of the Italian words in this episode. You're a meschina, and you're the best. Some of the sources I used for this episode are Britannica, SaintValentineMassacre.org, History.com, and Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history that you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast and an Instagram at dorkypod. Join them and be part of our growing community, but also to get extra tidbits about episode topics, like facts and pictures. 
Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow, but more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends.